what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey folks, if you'd like us to tell the canine community about your goods and services, be listed on all our show notes and reach new dizzying heights of success, then contact us to be one of our new sponsors for 2022. We are looking for creditable people within our community to help support our show while providing our listeners with access to quality products from your business. If you want to jump on board, please contact us at info at thecanineparadigm.com. Tell us about your business and we'll get back to you. Spaces will be limited to ensure both quality of products and not to overpopulate the airtime. But We're looking forward to having you as a new sponsor of The Canine Paradigm. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Rainy days, part two. It's always rainy days. Let's not even fucking talk about it. <laughs> we missed a week. You've yes, been away. You've been doing cool guy stuff. Mm. I was away doing semi-cool guy stuff. Yeah, but back we're on back. the tools. Yeah, back. You were training dogs. Yeah. I was training dogs. Mm. It was, it's been a fun time. You kind of know what your calling is when you're back out there and you're in the yeah. field and you're doing your dog work stuff. So, yeah, I had two weeks away working with Red Team, working with the Australian Defence Force, doing the bomb dogs. Mm-hmm. Had a great time. Let me tell you, really, really cool guys. Great work with the dogs. Really impressed. I mean, obviously, there's sensitivity things you can't talk about. Of course. But I can say that I really enjoyed myself. I made some new friends. I had a blast. I had two weeks of really cool time. Mm-hmm. It wakes you up. It moves your spirit a bit. Mm-hmm. All this stuff trapped at home with COVID and, you know, I, I love my job. It's a regular job, but it's a regular job. Yeah. But when you get to do the bit of the jobby side where it's a bit different and then you get to be with a bunch of boys and do boy stuff and be boys and mm-hmm. out working with cool guy stuff, like you said, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the trick, like, you know, for you, especially in such a large organization that you're kind of at the the tip of the spear, it's business stuff for you most it's, of the time, right? And yeah. It's, it's a treat to get to get back on the tools. Yeah, even I found that like, you know, I do mostly training of people, not so much dogs. In the mm. last couple of weeks, it's been a lot of dog training, which has been cool. It's, yeah. it's awesome to be actually got the clicker in my hand and the food in my pouch and actually shaping behaviors. I had a really great story that I know I told you in the kitchen just before we started, but really it made my heart fucking open up a bit. You know, like I really felt cool about it. So long story short, had a client, her and her dog were having a lot of problems with nose work style stuff. She sent me a bunch of videos. She was really, really prepared on the information. Like she'd filmed everything. And as I promised, long story short, she'd done really good foundation work with that dog. And you could see that she'd done good foundation work. It's just that the dog got really complacent, lazy towards the end. And it happens not only with dogs, it happens with us as well. So primarily what my advice was is we needed to go back into scarcity, but we needed to find a flow state for the dog where we didn't create a manic dog because he was being too underfed but a dog that understood that I need to do this. It's pretty much what Bart calls the whip. Mm -hmm. You know, we needed to introduce that back into his lifestyle. Soon as he did that, and like I'm sort of sitting there thinking, she's not going to do this. 
And I shouldn't have thought that because she surprised me. When I got back from the army training, I got this really beautiful text from her and all these photos of him after he'd been in trial. So she sent me this lovely long text, basically said, you know, like I was really skeptical at the start, but I did everything it said. And by the end of it, I put him in a trial to test him out because I was really happy with the results. Advanced nose works, beat 50 dogs, got first place. Amazing. And man, you know what? When people do things like that, like I said, I'm not going to be rude enough to say that I did it all and it's all me. It's not. All I did was gave her a little jab of experience. There's a lot of times where people say, oh, it's all me. I did all that and they couldn't have done it without me. Well, she's done so much work. She just needed a bit of guidance. Mm. That's why people come to you as a professional sometimes and say, look, I'm lost. Yeah. For some reason, I, I went right and I should have gone left and I don't know where that left turn was Mm -hmm. or that right turn was, whatever. But I just didn't realise where that was. Can you help me find that fork in the road again so I can get on the correct path? Mm -hmm. And because I'm looking at it with those second set of eyes, fresh eyes, you look at it and you say, I can see it. I can Mm -hmm. see exactly where it is. I know what needs to be done because I'm not looking at it from your perspective where you're in a stuck state of mind. I'm in a free state of mind so I can see it. Here it is. This is a solution. Please try this. And she did. And, yeah, it was nice. It was really cool. I take a lot of value in that kind of stuff. I really enjoy it. Yeah. You know, you get limited opportunities to trial your own dog and, yeah. and do things, but you have a lot more opportunities to just add a little bit of value here and there to people. Yep. And whether, you know, whether you're 0.01% of the nudge towards success that they have mm. or you're 90% of it, it doesn't matter. Like yep. being a contributor to someone's success with their dogs, it's an awesome feeling. And I think that's one of the that's one of the things I really love doing about the online sessions and stuff like that. Like the, a lot of the ones that I do are people who reach out to me because they have a peculiar issue and they need fresh eyes. Mm. Like they've, they need like outside of the box thinking and – Sometimes I'm successful in helping them and sometimes I'm not, right? Like, but I personally draw a lot of value from it. I really enjoy doing yep. that. So it's awesome when it works out. It does. Like I said, it makes your heart feel warm when you feel like you've contributed to that. It was just like I had two weeks away. I had a great time. I came back, got that message, and it was just like that little bit of sugar and spice where you go, oh, how cool is this? Mm. Hey, something else funny that I really I saw the other day. Let me just pull up this meme on Instagram. Because this really made me laugh. So <laughs> because we had that week off, somebody put a meme up, which was hysterical. It made me laugh where it's got a girl looking at her phone and it says, waiting for the Canine Paradigm podcast to drop so you can write some original content for your oh, business page. I did see that. <laughs> I did see that. That was funny because several weeks ago, you and I, we either put something on Instagram or it was something that we talked about on our show and somebody messaged me and said, hey, mate, I'm just letting you know that what you and Pat were talking about was on somebody else's page word for word and they gave no credit to you. Oh, well. And I thought, well, look, you've said this before and I took this point on board and I agreed with it when we said it all those episodes ago where you said when you put yourself out there, and you're giving this material away for free, you've got to accept that people are going to take it and they're going to use it yeah. because it's out there. You know, like it's we, – like we borrow other people's stuff for years. Like I keep saying, you know, Skinner, Pavlov, Thorndike, Lorenz, all of the behaviorists, all the people, Sapolsky, they must be just feeling all the hairs go up on the back of their neck on a daily basis because we all pinch their stuff. We all yeah. use it. 
you know, and impress all these people around the world. Like, oh, this is my stuff, but yeah. it's but it's not. You know, and the like, second it leaves your mouth, it's not your content anymore. Right, exactly. Um, but that made me laugh. That yeah, really, made that is. I did see that. Someone yeah. shared that. I was laughing hard at that. But yeah. you know, content's cyclical because you know I listen to lots of podcasts and I hear it, and it prompts you to think of other things. And we're not stealing from anyone, holos bolos, but we certainly are getting prompted by people. Yes, like we're about to do right now because I'm looking at. <laughs> This whole episode is about to be us answering questions that people have like triggering, you know, they've, we asked, what do you want us to talk about? So yep. we're, we're taking content from other people. Yes. And we did this a couple of weeks ago. There's our last episode and we're going to carry on doing it today. And we got up to this comment. That was much a question from Chad Lee. And I reckon the reason he's putting this is because me and him spoke about this. I'm pretty sure the day that I put this up, reinforcing concepts versus behaviors. Mm-hmm. So what we were discussing, and it's an interesting conversation, I think, is that a few years ago, and in fact, my online course, I say in that, we talk about shaping versus luring and and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And I back then was really, you know, that course was filmed three years ago. Mm. You filmed it. And I was really pro-shaping. And I still am. I think there's a lot of value in shaping. Yeah, and I love in, shaping, yeah. In the online course, I say, if I had more time, I would convince you to teach everything via shaping. Yep. But I don't. So, yeah, we're just going to talk that I think it's good, but, you know, this is how you do the full spectrum. And over time, I've evolved the way that I explain that to be, you know, that when you're teaching any behavior to a dog, you want to help the dog as little as possible, but as much as necessary. I totally agree. Yeah. Wise words echoed. Totally. And I'm sure I stole those from someone. And so what I don't, I don't care whether I'm luring a behavior. I don't care whether I'm shaping a behavior, but what I never want to do is leave the dog kind of stuck wondering what it is in Mm -hmm. an unhelpful fashion. Like I do want to find, I do want him to have to prompt and to think and to experiment with behavior. Yep. And if I find that he's stuck in any way, shape or form that is potentially going to become unhelpful for me, I will help the dog at that time. That intervention and provision of help can be for a few different reasons, right? Like one could be to limit the stress on the dog. That could for sure be one of them, Mm. but also to avoid some unwanted extinction related behaviors. And the example I always give is the way that my own dog barks when he stands, right? Because that was the way that I taught the stand was as a part of the shaping procedure, going from a down in a marker box, uh, in a marker board to frustrating him into the progression of the next behavior being a stand. He gave up on the idea of downing, which he knew and tried something new through frustration, which was a stand. But because he's a barky dog and I had tapped into like a level of frustration and extinction essentially of the existing behavior that led to the new one, it accompanied a bark. And I you know, foolishly chose to mark in that time and thinking I would be able to get rid of that bark later, which I you know did, but it, it was a hell of an effort to do so. I created a big problem for myself. Mm. And what me and Chad spoke about was like, you know, where do I fall on that idea currently about shaping versus luring or offering help to the dog? My prescription is to help the dog as little as possible, but as much as necessary. What I think of in shaping and, you know, I, I deal with a lot of puppies indirectly now like me and jazz are probably going to get a couple of puppies again very soon so i'll be back hands-on with puppies you know myself but for a lot of the time i'm helping other people with puppies i I have multiple clients that i do sessions with in real life and online with people who get puppies and want you know just a, a coach along the way and what i find myself encouraging people with puppies is to shape a lot but with no intention of actually teaching behaviors Mm. so what i have had a lot of success doing with dogs now 
is to do a lot of shaping, but really to build the mind of the dog rather than specific behaviors. Because I personally now think that I can, and most people, can be more accurate and precise in assisting a dog into the right positions, sit down, stand, healing, all those kinds of things. I can help the dog do the specifics of a behavior and I can get a behavior to look exactly how I want it to look using a lot more help than free shaping it, letting the dog figure it out. Mm. Because I think what happens in shaping is you're always approximating everything very, very slowly, right? And and the dog may or may not offer what you want and you're trying to capture those moments in times when he does. But I think if you want something specific and it's not a natural thing for a dog to do, it just makes sense to help the dog get there, mm. right? I, and I've had more success doing that. And so a lot of the obedience on my dog, yeah, it's powerful. Yeah, it's reliable, but it's not pretty. But that wasn't important to me in teaching it, right? We don't do IGP. Our obedience is very functional. And I tell my dog to downhill down, right? But he kind of, it's not as, you know, we're not getting max points in any competition for the prettiness of our down. And that's a consequence of the way that it was taught, right? Whereas I think that if I wanted him to down like a sphinx, there's easy ways to teach that. And free shaping it is not one of them, right? That's a really hard thing to teach a dog via free shaping. So for me now, reinforcing a concept, I'm happy to free shape that. Like the idea of a dog going forward and uh, the idea of a dog being bold and the idea of a dog sort of choosing to interact with things or to teaching a dog to make decisions that's where I want to go towards a, a, a shaping model as much as possible. I want to remove myself from the inference to the dog as much as possible and mm. let him experiment with behaviors and find success or not, depending on what he's doing. But when I want the dog to move his body in a particular way, I want, I'm just going to help him in the future. Like I'm just going to help him be in the right position, move why, in the particular why, why way. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you consider yeah. it? Well, I mean, the thing was I like Remy, I free shaped everything. He's never been lured. In fact, he won't follow a lure. Well, can I just interject there for a second? Because I think when we start talking about free shaping to the best of my knowledge and the, you know, like I really bunkered down on this whole concept of free shaping. Like when people were showing me examples of what they call free shaping, Some people, I agree with them because they actually understand what the concept of free shaping is. Free shaping is fleeting. Like it only lasts momentarily. Yeah. As soon as you become or that dog becomes operantly and mechanically aware of what's going on and surrounding, you've gone through free shaping and you're now into true shaping. Mm. So when a dog is exhibiting, let's say like a wild behavior, something that it's just going along and it's just doing a random behavior and it happens to be reinforced, whether self-reinforcement occurs or whether you reinforce it. That you could argue 100% and I would accept it as free shaping Mm. because it has occurred in the wild. As soon as the dog becomes aware that this is an orchestrated event and it's occurring more frequently and now it starts to understand like it's a construct built around it, it's no longer free shaping. It can't be because there's no more freedom around it. It's all based on something was free. I agree. It it occurred in the wild. Now it's not. It's under construct. When you talk about the construct of shaping as well, Shaping is something that encompasses a lot of things, whether it be lured or whether it be compulsion. Mm. So like if you guide a dog into position, that's still part of shaping. You're still shaping a behavior. Mm. Like you're still building upon the understanding of how to do a behavior, but you're doing it like if you're putting hands on, then you can say, well, I'm shaping via like a guidance or a compulsive method, whatever you want to call it. Some people call it compulsion. Some people say I'm guidance. It's a play on words. It's the same yeah. same thing. It's the same as like – instrumental and operant conditioning. It's the same thing worded differently. Yeah. And I agree with you, mate. The whole 
The NDTF has been preaching this for years. We've been doing it for years. The only thing that people do differently is they have a different mindset or a different practice or even different words that they like to associate around with it. Some people have ratios that they like to do. Some people like to say, I like to be 80% hands-off and 20% hands-on. I think you and I and most of the best trainers that we know, and I'm not discounting anybody here or trying to insult anybody, but the best people that I think that I know are people that consider everything for the best outcome with their dog. Yeah. The easiest and the best outcome, the least amount of stress in learning the model and the best outcome in the model, the way that looks and the prettiest it can be without thinking, okay, well, instead of having to be two years here, I can be three months Mm. and have it done and dusted and the dog understand completely what it needs to do with no adverse side effect without the dog thinking, oh, that was terrible. I hated every second of that. You know, like if you have to put your hand on top of the dog's shoulder blades and people are freaking out because they're saying to themselves, well, that's compulsion, man, more the fool you. Mm. Like you're, you're stuck on an event which the dog has no care for, absolutely zero care for. In the past when students have seen me do things, you know, like I've done a luring event where I've put my hand on top of the dog and they say, that's not true luring, is it? And I said, good point, it's not. Traditionally, this is a form of compulsion. Mm. And I said, I call it the hybrid model because it sort of exists between true guidance and luring Mm. because I'm putting my hand on there to suggest to the dog, which is compulsion, when the dog is feeling a form of of being compelled into a position. Now, I'm not pushing down on the dog. I'm just simply putting my hand on the shoulder blades because I know that will hasten the dog going down. Mm. You've done it probably, many people around the world have done it, you know, like we've all done it and all it is is basically adding a little extra help, a little hasten to the to the obedience mm. where the dog goes, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'm following the food but I can feel this. So rather than like manoeuvre around the food for, you know, like an extra 30 seconds, I'll take five seconds and I'll do it. And bang, you've got the dog in a position, the dog wins. You know what's really interesting about that, got me thinking, mm. is like a lot of the traditional – say people who do do crash and bash style training yeah, and people who think that any amount of pressure is crash and bash style training. I think the issue where people kind of go wrong with that kind of stuff beyond the unethical side of it is it does, it's not that effective because very often people via their like what they think is compulsion and I'm doing the inverted commas, right? Is putting the dog in the position rather than putting the dog in a state of wanting to find the position. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of things get overlooked in negative reinforcement. And it, I'm speaking at the ISCP conference later this year. This is a, the topic actually in which I'm speaking on is pressure, yep. right? And how it works, whether for action or inaction, right? Like the topic itself is called pressure before, during, and after the behavior. Mm. But really what I'm going to be talking about is pressure before, during, and after the behavior, but as a compelling motion, negative reinforcement, or as a stopping action you know, positive punishment. Yep. But I think very often you see people who are anti the use of pressure and rightly are because they see people using it to put the dog in position. So imagine with that, what you said there with uh, helping the dog into the down, if you actually drive the dog into the down, that's not going to be anywhere near as effective as putting your shoulder on the, like your hand on the shoulder of the dog and the dog choosing to go into a down. Mm. And I think that's what people kind of overlook when we talk about negative reinforcement is that I can give guiding pressure and I can help the dog find the behavior. But what I want is that the dog finds the behavior. 
I never want to put the dog into the behavior because if I put the dog into him and then take off the, you know, if I put the dog into the behavior and then take off the pressure, most of the time that's how you end up with like somewhat of a shutdown dog. Who's just like, just fucking put me wherever I need to be. Mm. Right. And they're less like happy, motivated and compliant. And they look like the dogs that we see from the crash and bash. Right. And of course, eventually they'll figure out how to avoid being crashed and bash and they'll go into those positions. But that's what I think gets overlooked when you talk about compulsion in the form of like a pressure lure mm. in that all I want to do is motivate the dog towards a new behavior. And when he goes into that behavior, I'll remove that motivation so that he's like, okay, here, I have made the right choice. And I think part of this, especially say with prong collars is people get told like, don't nag the dog with a prong collar. And it's like, but that's what I want to do. <laughs> like that's, that's exactly what I want. I want to annoy him until he chooses to change his behavior. And then because he chose to change his behavior, I will stop annoying him. And now it's his decision, right? And he's going to be- Or better still, it's his choice. Yeah, it's his choice, right? Mm. It's his decision, it's his choice, it's both. Yeah. And he's going to be much more committed to that behavior because he chose to do it and he figured out how to turn off that pressure. Now, if I just dragged the dog, you know, say we're dealing in a reactivity case and I like dragged the dog in next to me, that's management kind of forever, mm -hmm. right? Whereas if I just say to the dog like, hey, it's annoying and uncomfortable to be out there and then the dog goes like, hey, that's annoying. I want you to stop that. And they do something else and they go, hey, I stopped it. And the dog goes, oh, I did a behavior. And now it's really easy for the dog to escape and avoid that pressure in the future because he knows what he did. He mm -hmm. made a choice to do that. Whereas when you just put the dog into the position – and they don't make any choices. They just find themselves there. That's a lot harder for them to take on and learn and know like, okay, I escape and avoid pressure by doing this behavior because you put them in the behavior. They didn't make a choice to go into the behavior. And so now they have to start thinking like, shit, where did you put me? Where are you going to put me next time? Whereas if their learning phase involves them thinking basically, and and that's the, the use of intelligent amount of pressure where the dog can stay clear enough that he's like, oh, that's annoying and I want to stop it. Or that's a, mo that's a motivation that I have yep. to escape and avoid that pressure in the future. It just is like they're loaded words. And I know that like, mm. you know, even saying I'm going to annoy the dog and he's going to escape and avoid that pressure in the future. Like people will be cringing in their cars listening, but that's like just the guiding hand on the, on the shoulder blades exactly. is exactly that. I can give you an example of my own doing now. I mean, I know how to do this. I've been doing it for years since, you know, almost since Adam was a boy, I was doing jujitsu class one day and my mentor then, I've got the guy who owns a place is called Marcos. He's two IC is a guy called Stefan. Incredible instructor. Really, really clear, really breaks things down. He finds the level that you understand. Mm -hmm. So I was doing this maneuver where I was getting stuck on the bottom a lot and I just couldn't work my way out of it. And Stefan was telling me what to do. Like he said, do this and then do this. And what I did, what I thought, my comprehension of that I tried that and got stuck on the bottom again. And I said, Stefan, I got stuck on the bottom again. He goes, yeah, but you need to do this and do this. These are the two things that you need to do. So I did it and I got stuck on the bottom again. Then he came over and he put my hands where they should have been because he said, no, 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 put your hand here on the hip and the other hand here on the elbow. Hold them there. Now see what difference. Flip the guy straight over. Mm -hmm. 
And all of a sudden, it was a game changer for me. The night after, same thing, flipped the guy, got in the dominant position. Next night, flipped the guy, got in the dominant position, simply because Stefan came over and he put his hands on my hands and he physically guided me to the positions. He didn't break my wrists or, you know, like squeeze my thumb or pinch me or give me a smack in the ear or anything like that. So when people are listening to us talking about this escape avoidance training or even using, you know, applied pressure, compulsion, Stefan was using compulsion with me. He compelled my hands into the right position. Mm. As soon as he did that, I had a way out. I had a, a whole new application on how my game was going and how my flow was going from there. The exact same happens with dogs when we're doing training. As soon as that dog is empowered enough to understand, oh, I didn't get it. I didn't know I was supposed to not lick your hand for the next 20 minutes. Now I know that with that little hold on the on the top of my shoulder blades, okay, and I'm not talking about you standing up and, and compressing the dog down. I'm just saying many a times when I've done this and the dog's felt it, they feel, oh, this feels more relaxing to go down in this position. Mm-hmm. They do it, the dog wins the internet. Mm-hmm. Everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. I win, dog wins. Stephen Covey's version of the win-win, everybody is in, in a better state of mind. Training happens much faster. Retention Mm. happens better. Everybody is victorious in that point. What's cool about that as well is it becomes a tactile command. Yes. Right? And when you have a tactile command for a behavior, putting in a verbal command is so much cleaner. Yeah. Like I find that when people have like a just a minor tactile, they touch the dog in some way to help the behavior happening and the dog realizes, ah, okay, I escaped that that pressure by doing the thing, it becomes the command. Mm. Then you can kind of, you know, touch the dog faster and they're like, oh, you got me, I still do the thing. It becomes really easy for you to separate the, like, and give that one second air gap so the classical conditioning can take effect that you can give the name of the behavior and then the tactile command. Mm. Often, you know, when you're bringing on a behavior with nothing but like a food lure or something like that, what predicts the behavior going ahead for the dog cannot be always as obvious, right? So like, is it you getting the food out of your pouch? Is it, you know, at what stage in the luring process does the dog realize, okay, this is a behavior. This is, you know, like there there is some kind of trigger that the dog goes, okay, this is what you want. I'll do it. And then you have to find that trigger and go one second before it in order to add the command. Whereas like when it is a tactile command, that's so easy for you to then go, sit or down, wait one second, then touch the dog in that place and down he goes. And then before too long, you can't even touch him because when you say sit, he beats it and you're down. It's neurological. The dog has developed the pathway. And that's where the, you know, like when we're talking about these learning teaching phases and then the, the importance of that, learning teaching is great. The transition is where the real magic happens. That's where you see all of the sparks starting to fly around in the dog's head. And you can actually see it happen. Like you can see the dog looking at you like, I think I know this. Mm. That's fucking phenomenal. Mm. Like when you actually see the dog looking at you one day going, hey, hang on a second, I think I know this, and the dog's ready to take over, you've done it. Mm. Like you're well on your way to succeeding in that path, and you think all of this was worth it. Mm. All of the effort that I've just gone through for the last week or two with going through these motions, I don't know how long it takes. It's, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Could be days, could be weeks whatever it is, but whenever you get that transition and especially when you get it with a stubborn dog, it's funny that word stubborn. Stubborn is, I, I think stubborn is more when a dog knows how to do something. So maybe I've incorrectly placed that into the Well, I think where, where we use stubborn sometimes erroneously yeah. 
is when the dog has a strong commitment to an incompatible behavior to what you're trying to train the mm, dog to do. That's a better choice. of Yeah. So the dog has been taught really well yeah. by accident to do something that is incompatible with what you're presently trying to teach him to do. And there's a really high reinforcement history in that behavior you no longer want to see. Yeah. And you're trying to convince the dog for this new reinforcement history to do the new behavior. Yeah. And he's committed to the old behavior. That is what we then often refer to as a stubborn dog. Mm. Right. And it is that that probably technically is fitting the definition of the word stubborn because he's committed to a particular action and is unwilling to try another. But the reason would be reinforcement history. Well, you couldn't really call a dog stubborn if it's unaware of what it's supposed to do. And you're just saying, well, the dog is stubborn when the dog is going, I don't know what to do. I'm confused in this sort of situation. Your explanation, I agree with. If the dog has an incompatible behavior, that would be fair to say that's stubbornness. I'm going to look up the definition of the the definition. The definition. <laughs> is that, is that the-, the definition of the word stubborn. Having or showing dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position on something, especially in spite of good arguments or reasons to do so. See that, like, I think that fits exactly what we're talking about yeah. because you can get a dog that's like, no, I'm not changing my position because I am committed to what I'm doing. And- that's what we fucking do to dogs all the time. Like when I, you know, when we're out there trying to distract a dog out of a long down, the fact that he doesn't is that he is stubborn to the idea of the the long down, like within the very definition of the word. So like it's wordplay, you can. So that actually supports what I was originally saying. Totally. You're 100% right, sir. Okay. Well, I feel good. <laughs> I feel like I haven't broken any hearts in this conversation. No. Mm. So one thing I wanted to say on that, you know, like, and in, in pet dog terms, one of the reasons we see people whose dogs like persistently pull on the leash mm. is because their dog takes up the slack of the flat collar. People are like, no, fuck you. I'm not doing that. And they jerk the dog back, right? Into position. They like physically pull the dog back into position. And then, you know, very quickly, the dog is back at the end of the line and they pull the dog back back into the position by the side and to the dog, because it's not that aversive, the dog's just like, Oh, this is how we walk. Right. And it's a bit of opposition reflex too. Like it's a bit of like, Oh fuck this. It doesn't really bother me. And it's in a way it's kind of pleasurable. Yeah, totally. Right. So Mm. the dog's like, well, this is how we work. We walk like a fucking accordion. I walk out to the end of the line. You drag me back to you. I walk out to the end of the line. You drag me back to you. And so long as we get where we're going, I don't give a shit. Yeah. And because the (laughs) idea of walking on a leash is so foreign to a dog, the dog's like, well, this is how we do it. Like we do it strange, but it's normal to me. Whereas if people, if you just let the dog hit the end of the line and you can jiggle the line, it could be a prong collar, it could be a slip lead, it could be a flat collar, it doesn't matter. You just provide discomfort at the end of it and no more forward progression and you don't do anything. If you want, you can jiggle it, provide an aversive at the end, but you wait for the dog to take a step back that's real negative reinforcement, right? Mm. Because now he is learning and he made that decision to do it. And he will, of course, he will pull harder and he'll do all kinds of things. He'll experiment with behaviors. And if none of them are the ones that relieve that pressure, only the, the conscious choice to take a step back and get closer to you is what relieves the pressure. That's how you teach a dog to walk on a loose leash in like 15 minutes. That's why dog trainers are able to do it in like 15 minutes. And for some people, it takes a lifetime. Mm. And it's because you see people just pulling the dog back harder and they get a prong collar and pull the dog back harder with the prong. And the dog's like, all right, well, this is what we do. Now, now it's spicy at the fucking, the way you do it. Yep. It's still, it has to be up to the dog. Like the dog has to make a decision to do a behavior. 
in order that he escapes the pressure so that he can make that decision in order to avoid the pressure. If he's just being put there and he doesn't make any decisions, he can't make that decision in order to avoid it in the future. He's mm. stuck in the cycle of escaping it. And it's because you're doing the escaping for the dog. He's not making any decisions to escape. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So to finish out on the shaping, free luring, whatever, do you remember the email we got years ago from that lady who told us we didn't know shit about it? Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Patreon? Yeah, I do. And she's right. She's like, she's, she's very right. And it's because I don't care. So go fuck yourself. Right. <laughs> because I, I feel like, like I said to her, I feel like she used a bunch of acronyms. I didn't even know, mm. told us that we didn't know what the difference between free shaping and, and luring and capturing and molding and all these things were. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't like, I don't give a fuck. Right. And the catalyst was because I use marker boards and stuff like that. She said, you're not free shaping. It's like, that's technically correct. However, like if you can imagine total free shaping on one end of the spectrum, the left-hand side is totally free shaping the dog. It's just the dog in the, in the desert with no in- interference from anything or a vacuum. The dog's in a vacuum, no mm-hmm. interference from anything. And on the other end, the dog is being helped 100%, whether it's via a lure or a negative reinforcement, whatever, the dog's being 100% put into the position. That's the spectrum. And what I want to do is be as far to the left of that as is helpful to my session. Yep. That's all I want to do. I want to help the dog as little as possible, but as much as necessary. And sometimes I'm all the way over to the right. And sometimes I'm all the way over to the left. It really depends on the dog and what it is that I'm trying to convey to the dog. But without knowing the dog, but if I knew what it was I want to teach the dog, if it's a mental attribute, I'm much more likely to be leaning over to the free shaping side. But if it's a a physical behavior that I want to happen very precisely, I'm much more likely to be leaning over to the compulsion slash lure side, right? So, sir, would you say that you use what works? I do use what works. (laughs) I I help the dog as little as possible, but as much as necessary. Do you know, I've lived on that concept and it's not my concept. I've probably probably heard somebody else say it, but I've lived with that concept for as long as I've known. It doesn't mean that I've done everything right all the time. No matter where you are in your journey, you always have some form of limitation until Mm. you know better. And that's the Maya Angelou quote, words to live by. There's no point in struggling against that because it doesn't matter where you sit in the spectrum of what you want to do with training. You just have to imagine yourself like when people are coming up with a concept of training and you say, okay, try it and show me. And if it works best, then you've got to say, well, yeah, you've got to use that. Mm. You have to. And why wouldn't you consider it? Because if you're saying to me that there's a better way to do it, but your ego is getting in the way of the concept of doing it, because you can't sit with it. I'm like, my God, you're a monster. Mm. You know, really, because you really aren't doing what's best for the dog. You aren't reducing the antagonistic side of training to go ahead with something that's actually going to work for you. To be honest, my ego's got in the way of things like that in the past. Like people have shown me other ways and I thought, no, I can't do this. It goes against what I learned at ADT. Mm. It's not the same. And it's not like I was ever told to do that. That was just my conception at the time. That's what I believed I believed I had to defend a mantra, Mm. so to speak, but that's really no good. It's no good for anybody. It's definitely not good for the dog. Mm -hmm. And I agree with what you said. Like if you have to be as far left, like if you want to be as far left, not have to be, if you want to be as far left as you want to, but then you realize you've got to veer to the right because that's what's best for you and the dog as a dynamic, as a team, 
then not considering that pathway means there's something wrong with you. Mm. Not the dog, it's you. Because the dog will happily go along with whatever's best for it. As we know and as we've been echoing in that echo chamber of what we've been saying for years, we're trying to work towards the dog living its best life. Well, if you're not doing that, then you're not doing that. You're not letting the dog live its best life. You're fucking the dog up. True. Whew. Spicy stuff. A lot of Cajun on there. A lot of- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next one down is Cheryl Custer, who says- uh, Custard or Custer? Custer. Custer, okay. I like Cheryl. She's a lovely lady. Done. um, She's in the Patreon lives all the time. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, Appreciate you. She says, talk about stupid shit you've seen on the internet. What's the stupidest shit you've seen on the internet lately? Keep it to dog training. (sighs) Stupidest shit. I think one of the things I- I'm a free will guy. Everyone do whatever the fuck you want. But one of the things that I think is a fool's errand is- I see people on TikTok, you got three minutes trying to convey really complex ideas and their market is average pet dog owner. Mm. So they are, you know, a in-home behavioral person. Like, so they've got a, you know, a, a dog training business and with the dog that they are meant to be training a client's dog, they're talking to the camera and you know, demonstrating themselves doing bad dog training via like shutting dogs down in reactivity cases and stuff like that. I just don't think that is a great thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. As a marketing thing, I think that it's foolish because mm. your peers are the only people that can really understand what's going on there and they're not your market. Right. So they're looking at you and going like, that's stupid. And your customers are going to look at that and try and replicate it. Because the thing about, you know, the thing about social media is you hit a worldwide audience. So it, it's it's very fascinating to me that how many people have like quite a large social media presence, but run a like, so an international social media presence, mm. but run a local business. Yep. And, and so the information that you're putting out goes to a hundred thousand people around the world, right? Cause there's lots of TikTok accounts, right? That have, you know, a hundred thousand, half a million people watching, whatever, right? You're trying to show your skill set as a trainer, but if you're just a local business person, you really can't get anything business-wise. If you don't have an online course, you don't have anything like that. Like you're putting out information in this idea that, you know, I'm helping people, but a lot of the information they're putting out is really fucking dangerous for the average person to do, right? So like dealing with really risky aggression cases and stuff like that, that's what I think is the dumb shit I see on the internet these days. Mm. And it seems to me as a bit of a like dick ego move because there's not really anything to get from it. You're not well educating the public. So there's a lot of people who put out really cool detailed information, long form videos on dealing with clients and stuff like that because they want someone to be able to Google that and find information that they couldn't get anywhere else. Mm. Someone like Tom Davis, for example, right? Who has a really huge YouTube following and a local business but he puts out detailed enough information that people can look at it and you know, replicate it to an extent, mm. right? So he is kind of educating the masses and the average pet owner, he's giving you know free, viable information to those people. Love him or hate him, doesn't matter. That's what he's doing. But like three minutes is not a fucking way you can do that on TikTok, right? No. And unedited, just filmed on the iPhone, three-minute mm. video on dealing with an extremely complex aggression case is not only going to not help people, the random Jono who's going to see what you're doing and attempt to replicate it, it's not only going to not help them, it's, it's actually probably going to cause them problems. It's going to get them bitten. It's going to you know cause issues. 
So those videos get a lot of views, but mostly the views that they're getting is from us, other dog trainers, sharing it amongst each other and sharing it on social media saying, look at this dumb shit. That spikes the views. And now the random Jono, who's in a different country altogether and couldn't give money to the producer of that video, even if they tried, is going to see that video and attempt to replicate it. Mm -hmm. And all of us watching it in horror and disbelief add views to it and therefore internet credibility. So that's the dumb shit I see on the internet. Yeah, I agree with that. There's, I actually had to start unfollowing a lot of accounts recently because I get too angry when I watch them because I literally look at them and this sounds negative and it is, it's somewhat negative, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. There's times where I watch these people and I think what must go through their head is I'm a shitty dog trainer, but for some reason I'm entertaining enough on social media that I've seemed to farm likes by doing random and silly things on Instagram. Mm. And suddenly they start to get an upsurge because they're starting to sing and dance and they're literally becoming an entertainer rather than a dog trainer. What angers me about it is when I see people that I know and respect who start cheering them along. And I'm thinking they're not giving anything of actual substance unless it's entertainment you want. Mm. That sort of thing, when I see that, I just think you're a farce. You've literally left the realm of education. Going back to the positive side, I've seen things on social media lately with even people who aren't dog trainers, who are dog people, who are getting good quality information off people like yourself and many of the other people who do put good long-form videos up, constructive, free advice that people can really benefit from. And I've seen their work and I'm thinking, mate, that is amazing. You know, like you wouldn't see that shit 20 years ago because people didn't have access to that. But now people in their apartments and, and their homes all around the world are doing stuff that professionals couldn't even do 20, 30 years ago. Mm. And it's starting to lift the bar, like the bar is raising. But in some areas it's dipping because on the negative side of that, there's still people out there who are showing people – it's just random stupidity that seems to be – it's like Caesar building the, the Colosseum because the, the masses need entertaining mm. and just distracting people from what the important information is just to have them entertained so they, they stop asking about politics and stop asking, mm. you know, why is this shit actually happening or why, how can we do this better or how can we get this corruption out of here or anything like that. I'm not talking about – I don't want to bring politics into it, but you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, yeah. In the meat of it, I just think – is that really what you wanted to do? Did you envisage being a better dog trainer? Well, get off your ass and work and, and start mentoring under better people. Yeah. If you can't capture that on your own, if you're really patting yourself on the back because you've got 30,000 people, you know, giving you thumbs up and laughing along at your silly stuff that you're doing, if you think that's cool, okay, fair enough. I'm I'm the idiot in this conversation, right? Well, I think it's fair that people decide they just want to entertain. Yes, that, I agree. I, I agree. And people are entitled to be entertain like i mean there's funny shit that i share with people that i think is hilarious yeah but it gets on my nerve when that's all that they're showing all the time because they just run out of content yeah i think that it it is exciting and fun and worthwhile doing sometimes to jump out of your lane and do something a little bit unexpected like that the voila pouch commercial that karen what's their real business is blackhound i think post they posted in our group and it's uh yeah, the guy sitting there, it looks like he's nude. He's wearing the nude underpants. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is fucking funny. 
Like that is one of the best ads. But that's and that was so entertaining and it was so good. Like I, I already own one of those pouches. I wanted to buy another one. Just but I'm for not the talking s- about that. Like that, <laughs> no, that's what I mean. That's yeah. what I mean. So that's what I'm saying. Like that's really good because it's fun to entertain people and and to be so on point. Like that was so good. I, like I said, I wanted to buy another one of those pouches from them, even though I already had one. Mate, there are people that are skilled at doing both. They're not only are they fucking amazing trainers, yeah. but they're also very good educators. And again, to pay another compliment, you fit that mold well. Like you know how to entertain people and you also have like killer fucking content. Yeah, thank you. But I think social media is a really interesting thing, especially so it's not like it's a secret, but like I have a, a weird day job at the moment, right? So I'm working in a social media space. Just a couple of days a week. I'm still a dog trainer, but I'm, I'm doing it for and with a friend. Yeah. And I have to be the best at everything I do. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessively researching and understanding how it all works, right? Yeah. And it's just fascinating to me to see the work and effort that, some people in our industry and others for sure put into developing a very large social media following and like without really any thought as to what they're going to do with that following. Mm. And and I think that the type of business that you have, and this is, you know, this is presently my day job a couple of days a week is like, you don't necessarily need a big following. What you need is a targeted following. Right. And I think a lot of people, certainly in the dog space are throwing like this huge cast net and they're catching a lot of fish, but not very many of them are edible to them. Yeah. Right. Like, and it's a really strange thing to do. I think it's indicative of our time and it's addictions. What to, a great analogy. Yeah. I really like that analogy. Well, I'm working on them. And mm. I'm totally aware of the irony of the fact that I'm a person that's set for no reason other than an arbitrary goal of getting 10,000 followers on Instagram and worked my ass off to do that for no reason other than what I'm, I'm aware of the hypocrisy of the words that I'm saying. But the thing is, I also am a person who has an online course and then I can market to those people, right? And I make my living via doing that. And I coach people, you know, I do online sessions. I have people sort of from all around the world that I interact with. So I am fishing, I have developed a pond and I'm fishing from it social media wise of people who I can interact with and and can become my customers. That's the, that's the whole idea of being in business is developing that field that you can, yeah. And you can farm. But what we've talked about is like the, one of the reasons why, see, I posted for a long while there, I posted the exact same shit to Instagram and to TikTok on the same day, the exact same video, exact same everything. Right. And I get fuck all traction on TikTok to the point where I just kind of gave up and succeeded reasonably well on Instagram. And the reason was because they're really different platforms that want a different thing. And I know exactly what I could have done to get many, many followers on TikTok. I could have for sure, but I would have had to be something that I don't want to be. Mm. And that would have attracted a type of client that I don't want as well. Right. So like, I think that's, what's kind of interesting in that for us as dog trainers, I know it's such a cliched fucking bullshit thing when you talk about authenticity and all that kind of stuff, but it is so important because otherwise you're going to attract the people that you don't want to be attracting. So I could for sure, man, I could have a hundred thousand followers on TikTok by the end of the month if I went and got in some fights. Yep. That's all I'd have to do. All I'd have to do is track down some of the like, you know, big accounts that are, you know, anti-tools and that kind of stuff and started tagging them and getting in back and forth fights with them. And I could have a hundred thousand followers in, in a month. Yep. I could totally do that. 
But those followers are going to be people who want to see me fight with people. And I'm not, I don't want to fight with people. Yep. Right. And they're going to want to buy a product from me that is a confrontational product. And I don't want to provide a confrontational product. I want to provide a cooperative product. So I like that platform to me is kind of as a business is, well, I'm not going to pursue that mm-hmm. because to get the success, I'm going to have to step outside of my personal brand and my personal brand is authenticity. Like I just am who I am. I don't pretend to be anything other than I am. And so that's, what's interesting to me on the internet where you see people in the dog training space doing things that are are peculiar, like, like farming for no reason other than to have the likes. They don't have a way to turn it into business. They don't have a way to turn it into, into money. Mm. And the argument is very often, well, I'm doing it for the dogs, but more often the, or the not, the people that are doing that kind of stuff, their dog training is terrible, right? So you're not doing it for the dogs, right? And the type of dog training that you're doing is not really transferable. Like you at yourself, yeah, some of them themselves can handle a dog themselves, but what they're doing is not teaching it effectively to people who can reproduce it, right? Mm-hmm. And that is interesting to me. Like it, it's a very strange thing that happens in our industry, and I'm sure in many others. I'm positive that this is the same in many others. But, but one of the weird things, like I, I was talking to someone just today about this, is like burnout is so common in this industry mm. and it's because our job is often our hobby as well. So like accountants go to work and they do their accounting and fucking whatever. And then they go home and they go play darts or whatever, you know, whatever it is they do, they go home and do that. Whereas dog trainers, we spend all day training other people's dogs. And then we go home and train our own dogs. Yep. <laughs> and then haven't got the energy to do it. Right. Mm. So like, no wonder there's such a high burnout rate in our industry is because it's an all consuming thing. And, mm. and, and when dog training is your work and your hobby and your passion, you're never not doing it. Right. Because you, you have your own dogs, you're training them. And there's so few, like there are precious few, I reckon, you know, a, a minuscule percentage of our industry are people who clock on at nine to five. Right. Mm. Because they might do that somewhere else. Like you have staff here, turn up and work nine to five, but they've got their own dogs and they're, they're committed to the training of their own dogs yep. or you wouldn't hire them. Right. Mm. Like if they're not passionate people about it. So the people who are successful in our industry, it's kind of like self-determinate that we're going to burn out. Right. Like it's, it's almost like you have to, right. And that's why people sort of come and go in waves in this industry. People put like, you, you see them, they're everywhere. It's everything. And then they disappear for a few months and it's because they, they need time away. They need time off. Right. Mm. It's a tricky industry. Left of field. Yeah. While we're thinking about that whole thing, stupid things that we've seen on the internet. One of the ones that I just saw the other day, which I was thinking about this entire time, it's resurfaced a couple of times is this guy is agitating his mate's Doberman. Oh, I love that video. <laughs> I fucking, I love it and I hate it. I'm in conflict with it. Yeah. I laugh at it so many times and I think I've rewound it and watched it and laughed at it again. And then I get angry and I want to kick the fucking back of my chair. Yeah. So for the folks at home, there's a guy and his mate, he's agitating his mate's Doberman. The lead breaks, the Doberman just fucking sets on him and starts tuning him up. Yeah, and gets him pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And his mate's trying to drag him off him, but he's tooling him up the whole time. Like yeah. he's biting him in the legs and then the guts and everything. Like like it's serious. Like the guy fucks yeah, up yeah. bad. And if the guy's out there listening to us, I'm sorry, mate, but it really highlights incompetence. Oh, yeah. You know, look, it could be, it could have been as innocent as the equipment appeared to be in good order. Like I'm almost certain we've spoken about this. Like we do many times where we repeat the old things that we've talked about. Cause we can't remember what we've said from yeah. many years ago, but there was a time when Boyd and I were doing a demonstration for our first timers and Boyd got these leather leads from India and he's giving it, he's saying to me, Oh mate, look at these, you know, like I want to sell them. I've just had all of these sent over. 
And he goes, here, here's one for you. And uh, he goes, use that in the first timers thing today because we'll do the demo and then we'll sell the leads on top of it. And I said, yeah, cool. Nice new lead. Look great. Uh-huh. Big brass thing on the end. Boyd's doing the demonstration. He goes, okay, so this is what we call attack on command. He goes, Glenn, when you're ready, send the dog forward. I sent Harley forward. Boyd's standing there without any equipment on. And literally the lead just goes pop and it breaks. <laughs> Harley goes rocketing towards Boyd. He's seconds away from hitting him. And I just said, round. And Harley turns round and just run back to me. And like you see in PSA and things like that. Yeah, called him off. Boyd's got a cold sweat happening. Without missing a beat, he turns right round to the crowd and goes, and that's what we train for, exactly like that. So if anything, <laughs> every single person, no shit, every single person that came down bought the course that day. Yeah, every yeah. single person. But we walked out the back and threw all the leads in the bin. Yeah, yeah. So like, shit happens. Shit happens. So for old mate and his mate who got tooled up by that dog, that might have been an innocent thing. But it, when I look at it, it just screams of incompetence. There mm. just seems to be something that's not quite right in that video. Well, I'm not happy to see that old mate got tuned up either because that looked terrible. But it's still. I agree with you. Very much yep. that we see a lot of incompetence in the handling of the dog. Yep. But what I'll say is that guy got a fucking good civil response from that dog. (laughs) (laughs) And the dog got the best reward it could possibly get. So as a decoy, prepping that dog for biting for real, that guy did a fucking good job because it bit the shit out of him. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So so like we certainly can't call his his work incompetent. No. Irregular, yes. Yes. Incompetent? Mm. <laughs> Incompetent? No. Hey, we're running out of time. We we might have to... The next question is from Matt Vieira, chasing the current fad. I don't know. I think we just kind of spoke on that. I think that we our whole social media rant then sort of ticked that off, unless you have anything to add on that. I think we all get a little bit of seminar fever. I saw that thing that you did the other day with Matt where you were interviewing with him oh, yeah. and his colleague, and Matt was saying, you know, like, by the way, people, I, I think you use the example of you can tell by the the skin people wear around the skeleton or words to that effect. Mm-hmm. And Matt goes, oh, yeah, very much in sales. I can rattle off half a dozen names by the way I can hear them speaking. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people get seminar fever or book fever. And I'm guilty of this myself. You know, like I read a book and I think, oh, yeah, that's changed my way. Yeah, of, you apply it to everything. Right. And it's kind of like the hammer and the nail syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Over the course of the last six months, I probably read about, a dozen good books. I read, you know, like I've redone Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. It's a good book. I recommend it to anyone. And I've talked on the show about things like Why We Sleep, Atomic Habits, and I could rattle off a bunch of them. But the thing is, is by the time I finish the book, I'm really eager and motivated by the teachings of that book until I read the next book. Yeah. And I think, oh, no, I need to modify that because I'm thinking two-dimensional And I wasn't thinking about this. But then the next book comes along, which has a totally revolutionary chapter where you think, now I have to try and find space to slot this in. Mm -hmm. So you can become fad-minded that way. I think what the best thing to do is look at it and gather a little bit of perspective about how you're going to properly apply it rather than become impulsive. And I think impulsive is the problem with a lot of things. Mm. We get very impulsive about buying things or joining things or adapting to new situations. I believe that being rational and being considerate and saying, I really enjoyed that. That was great. But is it applicable to what I'm doing? We've had people that have come out here before and done seminars and great people who I really respect and I love them 
they're still friends that I communicate with on a daily basis. And my staff have gone, okay, that's what we need to do. We need to change this. And I said, no, no, it's not going to work in our model. It's great for your own dog. Go ahead and do it. We can apply some principles of it, but we can't totally remodel what we're doing because yeah. it's simply not going to apply and our customers won't stand for it. Yeah, They won't be able to do that yet. And I'm not, I'm not saying they will never be able to do that, but that's stage two and three of their evolution of, yes, I want to know more about my training. And I said, because some of these people are only ever going to take the base model. It's like people who buy cars. Some people will buy the cheapest and meanest looking car, even though they've got the potential to buy the highest, like they could probably go the next two tiers up or even the one with all the mod cons on it. They could afford that quite easily, but they choose not to. Mm. They don't want it. And you ask them why and they go, it's just a car. It just gets me from A to B where another person will buy the most expensive car in that category and you'll say, why? And they'll go, I just love all those features. Mm. I probably won't use half of them, but I love them. Mm. And some people say, use every one of them. That's what I want. I want to enjoy the car to the fullest. That's why I bought what I wanted. And people on their dog training journey or on any journey of education, whatever they want to do, they're all the same. They all follow that same principle. Mm. Some want to do base level. They never get off ground floor, but some want to go all the way to the penthouse. Mm. And good, great. That's wonderful. But you also have to understand, never let your ambitions get mixed up with your capabilities of what you are able to provide to a person at that time. The other conversations can happen. They can happen on an external level. But it depends on what you're providing for your customer at the same time. You, mm. you need to be aware that if it is a fad and it looks great externally, you really need to be considerate. You really need to think, can I plug this in? Or does it just look interesting and it's different and gets popular because it makes this person look amazing and mm. charismatic when they're doing their work? And some people have made a whole career off that. Let me be clear. I know dog trainers that are very charismatic people. They're skilled and they're quality trainers. They're more charismatic than they are skilled. Mm. And that's what creates the fad sometimes. And then people try it and they go, I'm fucking useless. I, I don't know how to do this. Well, it's because it's not what your model demands mm. it's not what you're going to sell to the people it looks good as a maybe as a trainer training your own dog but not to the public jerry bradshaw did an incredible podcast a few weeks ago you know when you're in the car and you're like yelling yes yes preach you know yep. yeah so he had one on direct versus indirect rewards it was really good right because what doesn't jerry do that's good yeah exactly, like he's, right. he's a pretty amazing sort of person but so he addressed something that i thought was really interesting in a lot of part, my fault, <laughs> not like me entirely, but certainly something that I perpetuated. And it was the idea of like direct versus indirect rewards. Yep. Right. Rewarding back to the handler versus rewarding in position. Yep. And I think when you're trying to teach people that you won't necessarily ever meet, right? So like you, you know, you have an online course, you do a podcast, you do that kind of stuff, right? You don't always see the the repercussions of what you say. Mm. And, and we've talked about that in the past, right? But one of the things that I really decided one day to try and push hard, and it was a teaching from Bart, was that that click release out of behaviors, right? And because my motivation was to try and get people who weren't doing it at all to do it more, I really harped on about it, right? And my goal audience, when I was saying that I wanted to use the click release, that's what I want to do in, in all behaviors. And I want, the, I want to be able to click the dog out of the behavior and I want the dog to come to me to find reinforcement. 
And as Jerry addresses in it, like, of course, that creates issues that I could, but I have another way of fixing them, right? Like I can pressure the dog back into the behavior when they begin to anticipate the release. That's knee po po. And I really pushed onto that. And when I was talking about that, I had it in my mind that I was talking to a person who was already like the avatar of who I was talking to was a competent dog trainer, maybe like a police dog handler who's on it, you know, like has handled a dog for a while, but has been taught everything reinforcing position. Mm. And by harping on about it, my idea was that I would give them a slight nudge to try it and they would end up in a balanced position of still rewarding in position because they had a lot of success doing that in the past and then doing a little bit of what I was talking about, and that would be you know rewarding out of position, and find that they built a better version of the behavior because they now had the best of both. But the issue that we've seen years later from people, me and, and many others, always talking about the click and release from behavior, is that there's people who came to us with a blank slate, and that was what they heard. And they heard me harping on about how that's what you needed to do. But in my mind, I was talking to people who needed convincing to do that from something else. And the words that I was using and the way that I was conveying it was putting so much value and emphasis in it that it inferred that you shouldn't reward in position, right? Now, because the way that I was explaining it was imagining myself talking to someone who already has had a lot of success rewarding in position. And I'm trying to convince them to also reward out of position. I've heard you talking about room service rewards before. Yeah. But for the most part, what I've talked about, and yeah, especially okay. when fair, I teach, fair call, fair call. is I've put a lot of value yep. into mm. rewarding out of position. Yep. Okay. And so people who come to the industry or to you know, training or listen to me and many other people, I'm not taking full credit for it. I'm throwing blame. So I'm not just blaming myself. <laughs> if that's what you heard, then you go, right, well, I should for the most part and by far and away the most or even exclusively reward out of position. Yep. Where in reality, like you, what you've got to do is both, right? Like you've absolutely, you, you, there's, there's pros and cons to both. And depending on the dog and the application and, and all those things would determine which one you do more of, mm. but for sure, in order to create stability, you got to pay the dog in position, right? And if you don't, then of course, you're going to have a dog that wants to break the position. And of course you can pressure the dog back into position. You can build stability that way, right? Like there's a million ways to skin a cat. Yeah. But I thought it was, it was an excellent podcast because he addressed in a very balanced manner the pros and cons of both. Everyone should listen to it because he probably did a better job than me sort of waffling about it now at the back end of this podcast. But it, it was very indicative of like the current fad. And it's not that it was a fad. It was that in order to attempt to educate people, more emphasis was put onto it because I thought and many others thought they needed more emphasis in that position because the person I was thinking of did but it wasn't a balanced approach for a person starting from scratch. Mm. And that has no doubt resulted in dogs that linger and look back when they're indicating it a source or dogs that break off of a marker board earlier, break the down position because they're always being, you know, and certainly dogs that in the change of position creep forward, that kind of stuff, right? Mm. Like, like there's lots of, problems that it has caused for people and there's ways to fix those problems, but we haven't necessarily given them those tools as well because that's a much more difficult, like using an e-collar to pull a dog back into a behavior is actually a pretty difficult thing to do. I mean, it's very easy to do, but it's a difficult thing to understand. Dog will get it. The dog will understand it if you do it correctly, but for people to understand it, it's very tricky. It took me time to get it. I mean, I I needed multiple backwards and forwards between you and Bart and 
Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, and, it and is. It, you really have to think about the concept of it because until it makes sense, it's like anything. Until it makes sense to you, you're sort of going, I think I understand it. Yeah. And then when you go away and you try to put it into practice, you go, oh, I don't understand it. And, I, I, and the issue is for a person, you have preconceived notions or experience in what an e-collar is. Yeah. And the dog doesn't, yep. right? So provided it hasn't had experience with the e-collar. So the dog will understand it very quickly. It, mm. When a person understands how to do it, it, the dog will get it, no problem. Dogs are great at fast tracking. Yeah. They're working off the raw data you're giving them. They don't have any, like, an e-collar should be paying. You know, like, they're not working off of preconceived ideas. Yep. But anyway, like, the better way to deal with that problem is to not cause the problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, there, Funny course, thing, that. Yeah, of course. Mm. And so because I have that trick up my sleeve of using the e-collar to fix the problem, and I'm going to implement that anyway, I can just use it. It's never an issue for me. Oh, well, I'll do that, right? And I'll teach people how to do that. But- what you probably should do is never encounter that problem and have the mechanism in place to fix it if it happens, mm. but by you know reinforcing in and out of the position and doing so in a way that is relevant to the way you want the behavior to happen next time. That's what reinforcement is, right? Placement and delivery is super relevant to the not just the reinforcer in the act of reinforcing and making more likely to happen next time, but the way that it's delivered will influence the way the behavior happens next Mm, time. mm. And so that for sure, I think is one of the things we see in the fads and people who like people who we look at as really good dog trainers might be pushing a point and it gets taken on as a fad where in reality, maybe they're pushing a point because they're trying to just move the pendulum a little bit on someone who has an opposing opinion. They're just trying to say like, Hey, let's try this as well as the thing you're already doing. But if you're not already doing the other thing, then it seems like this fad. And that's where people you know, say like, Oh, we've been doing that for 30 years. You're just learning it now. And it's like, well, no, I'm not just learning it now, but I'm trying to convince people who like don't want to do it to do it. And so we're making a big deal about it. So like, I don't see any, fads in dog training by success by people who are successful with their dogs, right? They're just doing stuff and they just are putting emphasis onto one particular part. Mm. This is the thing that I, I've, I've found myself, you know, because so many people ask me almost every private lesson I do ends up in this question is like, which course should I do? Nipopo or Ivan's TWC? <laughs> like they're almost the same thing. Do you want to learn from Bardo? Do you want to learn from Ivan? Because they just put emphasis on different parts, mm. right? And their dog training is dog training. They're teaching very similar things, but they put a big emphasis on different parts of it and gloss over other parts, right? There's no course that you will do which will answer all the questions you need answering. That happens through the experience of life. Yeah. That only comes through years of being in the field and trial and error. Yeah. It's the same thing with scientific experiments. You don't get lucky and just find the cure to the problem or the pandemic. That happens from years and years and years and trial and error in a lot of things because you can know all the answers and the dog will basically just throw you a fuck you curveball one day. Yeah. And you'll just think, why did that happen? Like that negates against everything that I've been taught against some of the best minds in dog training. Why did that happen? As you said, if they've glossed over that because that wasn't important to them, but that's a, a niche point of fixing a problem and you're unprepared for it, well, you, you don't have the answer right there and then. Yeah. And that troubles a lot of people because they really stick at this point and then I'll go back to their mentor and say, what do I do? Oh, just do this. Mm. Okay. They go back, they try it. It doesn't work. The dog basically, again, fuck you. And that's happened before. People have had those sort of sticking issues because to the person they think, oh, that's not the sort of dog I would work with or train with to start with. 
And that happens a lot in some fields of training. People go, oh, that's not really a dog that I'm, you know, that's why I don't train those dogs because they come up with these type of problems sometimes. I'm not saying that any of those trainers that you mentioned before, Bart or Ivan or anyone says that sort of stuff, but there are trainers out there who specifically quote that. I don't train those type of dogs because I find that they have these problems. Mm. That happens in life. While I was thinking about all this, I do want to circle back to something about some of the stupid shit I've seen on the internet. Oh, hit me with it. That fucking Peter ad where the dog is walking the person on oh, a prong yeah. collar. That is the stupidest. And Peter, honestly, if you've got any of your zealots listening to our show, that was really disappointing. I know that you guys are shock jocks. That sort of stuff is irresponsible. I know you don't like them. I know that you want them removed. I mean, honestly, that was the stupidest thing I've seen. Like, that was really disappointing. You should be ashamed of yourself for putting that on the waves out there. And other people are right. It looked pornography, you know, like a dog walking a person in a kink collar. I mean, that's sad. It It really is sad. It was ridiculous. Shameful. I know we've talked about it a million times. I don't want to harp on it, but I just think that people who call for, you know, the total banning of tools like that, if you really sit down and reflect on what will happen as a result of a total banning of those, and you're okay with that, then you are not interested in animal welfare. You have an issue with something and it's your ego that's driving you to want to ban it for other people. But if you truly take the time to have a look, now, whether you want to use them or not, that's a whole nother thing. Whether a dog can be trained without them, that's a whole nother conversation. But to ban them will for sure have a net negative effect on animal welfare Mm -hmm. now and into the future. If you haven't heard it before, it's an old child's nursery rhyme. I knew an old lady who swallowed a fly. Listen to the nursery rhyme because that's literally what is happening in this situation. It's just one preposterous act ahead of another one to try and resolve a ridiculous thing that happened in the first place. Mm. And it just ends up in disaster. What's your favourite nursery rhyme? That one? Hmm. Or like children's story. Children's story, I, I used to love Br'er Rabbit. Oh, yeah. Br'er Rabbit was such a villain, but he was always ahead of, you know, like he always was tricking the people who were trying to kill him and eat him and like the fox and, and, and everything. I, a Foxy Loxy, I think his name was or something like that, but he just was ahead of him all the time. He's using his ingenuity and his smarts to outsmart him. And as a kid, I used to love Br'er Rabbit. He was such a anarchist. <laughs> he was such a little anarchist. I read the other day, The Emperor's New Clothes to Rip. And, oh, yeah. Uh, it's a good one. Yeah, you we- told me about The Emperor's New Clothes. I've never heard of it until you told me about it. Oh, and really? You, you went, th- I think, I don't know if you did it on one of these shows. No, you- no, no. I've, I have a very strong link to some dog training stuff that I do want to do an episode on The Emperor's okay, New Clothes. Okay, well, we have to do, we, we should talk about it because I've never heard it before. You were telling me about it and I was so intrigued that I thought, hmm, maybe I need to read The Emperor's New Clothes. Yeah. I did watch Encarta the other day. Oh, and you did watch that? Encarta, yeah. What do you think? I liked it. It was. I love it. For a child's Disney movie. How dare you, sir? (laughs) (laughs) But I will say that I like Moama better. Yeah, Moana's fantastic. I like the soundtrack of Moama. Yeah, I love that. Dwayne Johnson's character in that is hilarious. Maui. Yeah. Yeah. And is it called Encantia? Encanto. Encanto. So Encanto is good and it has a really, the story. I thought you would like it. Yeah, the story and the meaning at the end is very powerful, and when it comes to its conclusion, 
and you find out why what happened to the girl at the start happened to the girl, it's really uplifting. Like you think, holy shit, that's powerful. There's a really powerful message and it's good for kids to hear things like that and listen to things like that. You know, like it gives them good foundations on how to build a social structure. It's just rare that there's any Disney movies that aren't full of woke bullshit these days. Yeah. It's like, there's no villain. The villain is that their grandma puts too much pressure on them. You know what I mean? Like it's a really fucking good movie. That's why I like Moema too, because you know, even though Maui is a bit of a, a villain and he's, treats Moama like shit and, you know, like fucks her over and stuff like that. Yeah. He also realizes that he caused this problem and he needs to help her fix it. Yeah. And he becomes the hero he needs to be. And some of these stories are brilliant. You wouldn't think that something that's, that's made to entertain children can have such a, a multi-layered facet that adults can get something out of. It's yeah. it, and it's good for adults with kids, but even, you know, like sometimes I'm a big kid, I like to sit in front of those things and I watch them and I think, oh, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's wrap it up. That's it for the Kids Disney Movie Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't so much about Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) If you like what you hear, give us a like, rate, share, subscribe, all those kinds of things. It it does help. I know it's a cliche. It's like, yeah, but it actually, it's not just jerking us off. It is putting it out there for the algorithms to know that this is something that fits your profile. Someone that looks like you online – likes the show. Yeah. So therefore we will show it to other people who look like you online because they will probably like the show. And some people did it. Yeah. They actually went ahead and said, look, I've been thinking about it for ages. I put it in our Instagram and I thank those people. I really appreciate that they made the time. Like I know it's no small effort. It's a pain in the ass. I hate leaving reviews myself, but in guitaring and other dog training stuff, If there's been things that have been very helpful to me and the the advice that I found has been sage, I will make the time to show that person my appreciation. Yeah, but it's not necessarily about that. Like the way the algorithm works is, yes, it makes us feel nice. Uh, Yes, it makes us feel like, thank you, you've shown appreciation to us. But what it really does is it lets the algorithm know. Expand our audience. Yeah, the Mm. algorithm know that as someone who looks like you with a a social media footprint and online footprints like yours – likes that type of content and therefore it will expand that type of content to people who look similarly to you, uh, what they call a lookalike audience online yep. of you. We really need reviews in Spotify. Okay. Spotify is- If we're uh, going to get a $100 million contract. Well, that's right. If we're going to go and set up next to Rogan, we really need to get into the Spotify algorithm. So if you can get onto Spotify, and I've been told by people that Spotify is a bitch. It's a it's yeah, it's, it's a pain in the ass to try and find. So pretty pleased with a nice cherry on top if you could make the time to go to Spotify. And if you have left us a review in another format, I know people have done them in Podchaser and they've done them in iTunes and or Apple Podcasts and so forth. But Spotify is, it's the next big linchpin in podcasting. So we really need those reviews online. Pat made me laugh a while ago when he said, we're really, you know, we're really being a bunch of naggers trying to get reviews. <laughs> But he's right. Like those reviews, they really set the stage for advancing our audience yeah, and, and getting us into other living rooms. And yeah. and only you can help us do that. Yeah. Mm. You know how else people could help us? Patreon. Just straight cash. Oh, straight <laughs> up straight up cash. Straight, straight cash. up shirt cocking it. <laughs> so just jump into Patreon yep. and just give us some money. I noticed when you did your live the other day, we got a whole bunch of new people. Yeah. Well, we, I think people don't know that 
like stuff happens in there. I think actually I know for sure people have said, oh, I was in the Patreon for 10 months and didn't even realize that you guys put content into there. I thought that I was just donating to the show. No, there's a bunch of educational material, like things that we've talked about in the podcast in short. And I'm going to throw over to Pat here because he's generated a lot of his time to do this and very generously, I might add too. But the things that we have talking about in short content here have really expanded in Patreon. Yeah. Like literally the nuts and bolts of many of the, of Pat systems are in Patreon. Yeah. Like if you, if you search through there and had a good look through there, you would be absolutely floored what you can get for little, little dollars. Yeah. Three bucks. Yeah. So like, that's the way Patreon works. There's a ton of backlog of content. There's a ton of it and there's more content going forward. We trickle stuff into there and you guys are also funding all the other content that goes out. So you're funding the production of the show. Like you bought these microphones that are in front of us. You bought the, the everything that's in front of us here. We're doing that. Yep. You guys paid for all of that. All of it. And that creates the ability for us to make other content that is, you know, for you to consume on other platforms, like the YouTube stuff and all that kind of stuff that I've, I've made. That's all done by Patreon. So mm. you get access access to a bunch of stuff exclusively within Patreon, but you're also pushing the machine forward of the show doing other stuff. Mm. You could buy a T-shirt. Oh, yeah, Teespring. Teespring. Yeah, absolutely. We've got an online store at Teespring. If you go to Teespring, I think they drop the T in it and they just call themselves Spring. Spring. Yeah, yeah spring.com forward slash the canine paradigm. If you get on there, there's a bunch of merch. There's T-shirts, there's socks, there's towels, there's tapestries. People have got our tapestries all over the world. Do you yeah, know that? It's amazing. I've got one in the shed out there that I bought as a sample yeah. that we could have a look at. It's enormous. Yeah. Tracy Mammon's got one. Yeah. There's people in the UK who have got them. There's They're people. Wonderful. There's heaps of people in the United States who have got them. Yeah. So they are literally a worldwide phenomenon. <laughs> get yourself a tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook discussion group. That's a really good place to ask information, group source some information, use a search function, see what you can find in there. If you just want to stay in the click about what's going on, that's a place to do it. But if you've got something specifically for us, you can shoot us an email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. Goodbye.